Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I will never go camping again. Here's why. Written by G. Sank, 58. Urban legends have been a part of society for as long as humans have been alive. Dismissed as legend and myth, these creatures have made for many good tales over the years. However, not many of us consider the idea that some of these monstrosities could be real. I mean, their initial stories came from somewhere, right? My name is Vincent. And my family and I live in the small town of Whitefish in Montana. Every summer, we spend a couple of weeks in the woods camping. We have our own little campground in the forest near Glacier National Park. We have been going to this spot for years now, and have everything up there, including a campfire, grill, tent and whatever else you would want when camping. My dad bought a little camper a few years back when we had first started going, so that's what we primarily stay in. The rest of my family consists of my mother and my little sister. I've always liked the woods. Being outside has always been a passion of mine, ever since I was a little boy. The great outdoors had always piqued my interest. Exploration and curiosity go very well together in life. However, sometimes the animals of the woods give me a little scare. The thoughts of encountering a bear or a wolf always frightens me a little bit. But I never thought about it, whatever that was. A couple months ago... We were getting ready to go camping again. My dad said that he wanted to try a different spot than our normal one. He claimed that he had been looking into the area for a while now. It actually wasn't too far from where we normally went. My mother and sister weren't too pleased, as they enjoyed our other spot and didn't want to start over. He said that there was already a fire pit and grill at the place, and that many people had been there before. We were hesitant about it at first, but finally came to the conclusion that it would be fun to try out new things. When we got to the campsite, something seemed wrong. I couldn't explain it but I just got an eerie feeling from the place that we were at. It was one of those feelings where you can feel your body trying to tell you that something is off, but you just don't know what. It must have been something about the silence. I ignored it, 
and decided that it was just because it was a new spot. We spent most of our first couple hours there setting things up and getting situated. After everything was going and the fire was roaring, my dad asked me to come with him somewhere. We walked for about two or three minutes into the woods and eventually came upon a decent-sized pond. He told me to go grab the fishing rods that we had packed, and which were in the camper. I went back and grabbed them, only to find my mother and sister out of sight. And getting the feeling again that something was wrong, I frantically searched for them and started screaming their names. It was about three minutes later when my dad came walking back asking me what the heck I was doing. I told him that they were gone, and he pointed out in front of me, and lo and behold, there they were, just taking a walk. And I laughed at myself, and walked back to the pond with my dad, fishing rods in hand. We fished for a good half hour, and we did alright. We both caught about seven or eight fish each. But that's when things changed. And when I seriously started to consider the idea that we shouldn't be where we are. In the midst of a cast, I heard a very loud noise that resembled a, a big tree branch snapping in half or falling off. I looked across the pond where the sound came from. My dad and I, bewildered, scanned the treetops but saw nothing. We concluded that one of the tree branches just got loose and that it fell. But then it happened again. We both agreed that maybe it was a time to take a look. I mean, these noises sounded like huge branches snapping in half. Upon reaching the other side of the pond, that's when we saw it. Two tree branches almost as thick as the trunk itself lying on the ground. What on earth had caused this? Thinking things couldn't get any stranger, it happened again, this time farther away. My dad and I had no answers. I couldn't tell if he was freaked out or not, but I certainly was. I knew something seemed off. After ten minutes or so without another noise... We both just walked back to the campsite to meet up with my mom and sister. We got there and decided to get the grill going. We cooked hamburgers and hot dogs that night, as well as s'mores around the fire. However, it was nighttime when my nerves hit an all-time high. Hearing howls of creatures in the night wasn't unusual but I never could have prepared myself for what I heard that night. At about 10.30 or so, that's when it happened. A loud, ear-piercing shriek echoed throughout the woods, deafening anything else around it. It was such an inhuman and disturbing noise that my whole family immediately stood up from their chairs and looked around. I said to my dad, Dad, what in the absolute hell was that? It had sounded like a high-pitched scream from a woman mixed with a wolf howl. 
I didn't know how else to describe it. But whatever made that noise was neither of those things. He responded, I have no idea, but I need you to get my gun. I raced to the camper and got out his shotgun for him and watched him load it with serious intent. He told my mom and sister to go inside the camper and wait. And then it happened again. That same blood-curdling scream filled the wooded air. Except this time, it was closer and louder. Whatever made that noise was approaching our position. I knew something seemed off. For a second, I was convinced none of this was real. I was convinced I was legitimately in some sort of nightmare. The screams, the branches, the new camping location. It all seemed too bizarre and strange to actually be real life. Nothing made sense and nothing was lining up here. Unfortunately, this wasn't a nightmare. And I quickly realized that as me and my dad stood at the edge of our campground, ready to defend ourselves from whatever was threatening our family, what happened next is something I haven't been able to comprehend or explain to this day. This is the first time I've spoken about it since. My dad turned on his flashlight that he had brought and pointed it in the direction of the scream. In the distance, about 100 yards away, was a small black creature rummaging through the leaves. Whatever it was, it hadn't actually noticed us yet. The creature stopped and once more let out that terrifying scream. My father and I had no idea what we were looking at and we both began backing away, trying not to provoke it. It must have been blind or something, as the light was shined right on it. Neither of us made a sound for the last minute. We were both petrified and consumed by fear. And that's when I made the biggest mistake in the bug. I stepped backwards, right onto a little branch, snapping it clean in half. The creature whipped around and just stared at us and then it began to slowly approach us. We carefully backed away, trying not to make any noise. The creature then began to gallop, and it was when the monster was about 20-25 yards away is when I could really see it. It was a grotesque, hideous-looking being. It had a body structure similar to that of a human, it stood on two legs and had two long, skeletal arms. Its skin was jet black, and it looked like it had been severely burned from head to toe, as its skin had a rough, patchy texture to it. It had no apparent eyes or mouth, and its face was just this black, mangled mess of skin. Both of us were frozen in shock at what we were looking at, it transitioned from its bipedal stance to walking on all fours, and that's when we made a run for it. 
We sprinted back to the camper, which was about 20 yards away. As soon as we had arrived, that thing was already right next to us. It moved at an incredible speed, and that's when it screamed again, about five yards away from us. Its mouth opened amongst its disgusting face, and it had rows and upon rows of razor-sharp, horrendous teeth. This was something straight from hell itself. My dad fired the shotgun at it, pushing it backwards and severely wounding it. Nevertheless, it rose again and it leapt at us. My dad fired once more at it, wounding it again. The creature was much slower to get up this time. Mortally wounded and wailing, the creature let out a faint screech that was filled with pain. My father reloaded the shotgun and blasted the thing one more time as it was hobbling away. This time, the creature fell and didn't get back up. We walked over to it and kicked it a few times to make sure that it was dead. For good measure, my dad put his last shell directly into its skull, taking its head clean off its body. We took one last good look at the beast before we went off. This was a demon sent to Earth. This was the creature everyone sees in their nightmares. My father and I were both shaking, our voices trembling with fear and adrenaline. We jogged back to the camper and the first thing my dad said was when we got inside is that we're never going camping again. And with that, he drove off and we left the woods. Like I said, to this day, I couldn't tell you what that being was. I did some research and came to one conclusion that I'm still not even sure is right. The Chupacabra is a creature known as an urban legend to many. Its description varies among different sightings. Generally, it is a smaller but somewhat heavy looking creature with spines along its back reaching from the neck to the tail. It's allegedly vampiric, attacking livestock and sucking the blood from them. Sightings of the chupacabra have been reported in the USA, Puerto Rico, Chile, Russia, and many other countries. This is one of the explanations I have for what I saw, but it still has problems. The creature had no apparent tail or spines and it wasn't necessarily heavy looking. In fact, its body was about the size of an older child. I have no idea what else the creature could have been through. Like I said, descriptions of the chupacabra vary among different encounters and sightings. Another legend that came to mind was the rake a creature made up by the internet, published as an infamous creepypasta. This humanoid creature is tall, pale, and usually walks on all fours. It has eyes and a mouth and is typically hairless. This creature is entirely fictional and is an internet creation, but I'm just thinking of ideas and similarities to what I saw in the forest that night. 
if anyone has ever encountered anything like this before, please reach out to me. This has been bugging me for months and I'm not going to return camping until I get an answer. I'm not even sure I should be telling you any of this, but I needed to get this out there and into public ears. I need to warn people that there may be more of these creatures out there threatening to hurt people in the woods. There are faces in the shadows, written by Writer of Thingies. I'm not scared of much, never have been. I've been a hunter for a long time. Sounds so bald, so naked, saying it straight out like that. I've never admitted it before, not to anyone. It's been my secret little hobby for at least 16 years, ever since I pushed my husband down the stairs of our home and broke his neck. You would never have thought I had it in me back then. Not mousy little Helen, with her timid smile and quiet ways. Not the woman whose key lime pie crust got an honorable mention in the neighborhood magazine. It turns out people can be good at more than one thing. I used to come across as such a scaredy cat, never putting myself forward, never speaking up, never doing much of anything really. That never felt like me on the inside though. Looking back, I think I was just bored. Nothing interested me. I was brought up a certain way, to expect a certain life. A comfortable existence in my parents' home. Off to a nice college in a lady's dorm to do nothing taxing, while I waited to get the only letters in my name that mattered. That all-important Mrs. Married at 21 to a boy with good prospects, tidy hair and clean underwear. A comfortable existence in his home. Got a dog, learned to make pie crust, and was all set to slide into a dull life forever. Until one day when, for no reason at all, I got so sick of his smug self-satisfied face as he dropped another dirty tile on the hallway floor and gave me another one of those slimy little grins when I told him to pick it up. Sorry, honey, I forgot. Could you just uh, drop it in the basket for me? Famous last words. I don't know what it was about that day, that towel, that particular edition of that same shit-eating grin I had been seeing day in and day out for three years. But I felt a burning, red-hot rage well up inside me for the first time in my whole life. I reached out, feeling like someone else had control of my body. And I put my left hand, with the wedding ring on it shining in the morning light, over his face and I pushed. He didn't go straight over. He paused for a moment, arms pinwheeling. Shit-eating grin finally wiped off and replaced with a look of... Total shock and then Donnie went. He landed on the marble floor of the front hall with a crack. And he never moved again. And with that, one little shove. I was free. The burning red rage subsided and was replaced with a wild, fierce joy. It's a high like no other. The rush of power that comes when taking control over someone's life. I knew even as I went through the motions, talking to the police, 
dealing with the funeral home, hugging his whimpering mother and promising that we would stay close. All that BS. I knew I would have to do it again, and I got my chance sooner than I thought. His mother had phoned me. She wanted to spread his ashes together. Just a lonely old woman with no family left. Son taken too young in a horrible accident. Why wouldn't she just jump in the river? I practically did her a favor. Of course, I couldn't just keep pushing people I knew. I'm not an idiot, but I found my moments. From a railway bridge on a hike, a lone walker stopped to chat to the first person he had seen in a while. On a darkened street, a drunk young lad tried to pick me up and got a car in the face instead. In the subway in New York, I didn't even see it properly. That one was a rush, right in the middle of a crowd of people, but I got away with it. I've pushed maybe 25 people in 16 years and I've never regretted a moment of it. About every six months, I'll get that urge and I'll find an out-of-the-way place, a quiet time, and I'll wait. Someone will come along. Someone always does. And last night was no exception. There's a gully in the park that I've had my eye on for a while. It leads to a flood outlet pipe and it's fenced off normally. But in the last few months, a storm had knocked down part of the fencing, leaving a gap. Really, it's city maintenance's fault. If they would just come out and fix it, the feeling might have passed. But instead, that gap started to draw my eye, itching away at me. I couldn't stop seeing that empty space where a fence should be, like a missing tooth. Eventually, I had to take the plunge, so to speak. It was after six. The sun had already set and there were even fewer people around than there would normally be. A little pandemic bonus for me. I waited by the gap for a likely person to come by. It was freezing cold and damp. Perfect, slipping weather, but no fun to wait in. Luckily, it wasn't more than a half an hour or so before someone stumbled by. She was older, maybe 70 or so and carrying a couple of shopping bags, obviously cutting through the park to save time. I wondered why no one was doing her shopping for her in these times, but it boded well for me if she had no close friends or family. I hurried up, a look of concern on my face. Uh, hello, I'm sorry to bother you, but can you help me? There's a gap in the fence and I think someone's fallen down. There's something at the bottom. She looked confused and hesitated, but I gave her no time to think as I pressed on. I think I can reach them, but I'm worried about slipping myself. If you could just come keep an eye on so if I fall, there's someone there that'll be able to call for help. She relaxed a little when she realized I didn't want her to really do anything much, and she followed me over to the gully. Don't you think we should call the police, love? She asked as I swept her along with me. Uh, we will, but I just want to check it out first. I don't want to cause a fuss if it turns out to be a couple of old rags and a funny-looking bush, I replied. We were at the gap now. The excitement was starting to build in me. That bubbling feeling in the pit of my stomach, sending thrills through me. She was nearly at the edge now. It was time. Oh, your bags, I exclaimed 
perhaps a bit overdramatically. I'm not exactly Lawrence Oliver. Let me put them here for you so you don't slip over. I took the nearest one and I rested against the fence, taking the excuse to step behind her. I smiled encouragingly, took a step and I shoved. Her eyes went wide and her hands flew out as she went over. The other bag, still in her hand, arched up and over, scattering its contents over the gully as it dropped. That familiar thrill, breathtaking, in its sharp, vicious joy filled me again, sending my blood rushing through my veins, pulse thundering in my ears. I closed my eyes to savor the moment. When I opened them again, I looked down at the gully. The old woman was crumpled at the bottom. A splash of red on the edge of the outlet pipe marked where she had cracked her head as she had landed. I went back to where I had left the other bag and I picked it up, ready to cast it down on top of her. She looked like she had slipped in the dark, just stumbled the wrong way, easy. But she was still alive. In the dim light, I could see her struggling feebly. Either I had misjudged the gully being shallower than I thought, or she was tougher than she had looked. My gut twisted in a sudden knock of fear. I've never made a mistake like this before. It's always been one push and done. The fall is deep enough for dangerous to kill outright, and if I think it might take a while, I only risk it in the most remote places, somewhere that I can watch them go and be sure I'll be undisturbed. Not in a public park, however big or empty. Stupid broken fence. I threw the shopping bag anyway, perhaps in the dumb hope that she had been buying something heavy. But the groceries just bounced off the pipe and landed next to her. The noise seemed to rouse her a little. She looked hazily around the ditch that she lay at the bottom of the gully, and then she looked up and seemed to freeze. Though it was too dark and too far to see properly, I felt a chill run through me, and I knew that her eyes were fixed on me. Push her! The hiss came floating up from the dark below. You pushed me! I looked around. No one had come by yet, but my luck couldn't hold out forever. I leaned into the gap and scrabbled around in the mud on the sides of the hole, looking for a rock or something that I could use. Pusher! Murderer! I found something. I had to kneel on the edge and use both hands to pry it out. It was so heavy. I lifted it and got to my feet. I only had one shot at this. I took careful aim. How would you like it if someone pushed you? I threw the rock. The rest was silence. After a moment or two to catch my breath, I surveyed the scene. The dark was rising and it was hard to see in the gully, but I could see enough to tell that she was done. The mud was a little more scuffed about than it should be, but I thought that it would pass. Especially if the damp turned to rain. My clothes were filthy though. I needed to get to my car before anyone saw me. I had left it on a side road near the park. I watched quickly. Coat clutched around me to hide the worst of the mud. As I reached it, I pulled out my keys and got in as fast as I could. It was only when I was in my seat, hands on the steering wheel, 
that I let out a breath I hadn't realized I had been holding. My journey home was uneventful as ever. I pulled into the garage and sat for a moment in the dark, closing my eyes. In all the panic, I hadn't really had a chance to enjoy my moment, and I wanted to take a minute to embrace that feeling, to scratch my itch. Pusher! My eyes snapped open. I looked around, but the space was empty. Just a figment of my imagination. I got out of the car and started toward the door when something flickered in the corner of my eye. I turned and peered into the corner. There was something, a shape. I stepped towards it and the shadow shifted revealing nothing, but an old overall of Jack's, my husband's, hanging on a peg next to his car tools. I walked into the house, shaking my head. For a moment, the way the shadows played across the fabric had made a shape, I told myself. It was just the stress of the night. Just a coincidence how for a moment, it had looked just like his face. I slept better that night than I had for a while, but for some reason, maybe my leftover jumpiness, I kept the bedroom light on. I woke up the next morning, rested and surprisingly cheery. The itch was gone and I had chores to do. I was supposed to be baking a cherry custard slice for the neighborhood charity bake sale, and I needed to go through the sales figures for my store before my tax return was due. On the whole, I considered it, it seemed more like a cake day than an accountancy day. So, I checked that my shopping list app was up to date, headed on the step to the garage and I got in the car. I pressed the button on the door remote and a crack of light began to creep across the dark concrete, widening as the metal door began its slow roll upwards. I was looking in the mirror, tracking the door's movement when I saw her, standing in the shadowy corner of the garage, unmoving, just staring at me. My mother-in-law. Her hair was slick with water from the river, her features sterner than I had ever seen them in my life. She had been a pretty silly woman to be honest. Her eyes glittered as she fixed them on me. I held her gaze, frozen in place as the garage door rolled upwards. As the light crawled up her body, the image melted away, leaving only a stack of old newspapers for recycling. But her face never changed. I held her eyes until the last moment, even as the slow-moving light was turning her image back into nothing. More than the rubbish stacked up in a dusty corner, the impression of her eyes never wavered. I gunned the engine and backed out too quick, nearly knocking over my own mailbox in a hurry to get outside. At the store, I managed to relax a little in the hustle and bustle of other people. Too much time on our own in this pandemic, I told myself. We've all reached a breaking point. And then suddenly, I noticed a man not too far away from me. He was standing still in between two shelves, not caring if people walked too close to him. The shadow of the shelf cast an odd tint to his face. He looked vaguely familiar, I thought to myself as I caught his eye. Dressed for a hike, he had a heavy-looking backpack on, with one of those metal bottles hanging out the side. It had clanged loudly, I remembered, when he hit the stones below the old railway bridge. I had been worried for a moment that someone would hear. His lips curled into a humorless smile and he mouthed a word to me. 
pusher. I dropped my basket where I stood and made for the exit, trying not to run but walking as fast as I could. I had my eyes fixed on the car as I scurried across the parking lot. I pulled my keys out of my pocket but my nervous fingers fumbled and they flew out of my hands and landed under the door. I dropped to my knees and reached for them. A girl lay in the darkness under the car, 20-ish, a college student type with her hair in a messy side bun. I didn't recognize her. She saw my confusion and grinned wildly, her hand slowly creeping towards me as I crouched on the tarmac of the parking lot, unable to move or look away. How would you like it if someone pushed you? I looked at her flannel shirt and suddenly I knew. I remembered the back of it as hidden in a crowd, with no idea of who I was pushing, just unable to resist the thrill I'd... Ma'am? A voice behind me broke the spell. One of these door clerks, probably on shopping cart duty. I snatched my keys from the girl's reaching fingers and I jumped in my car, blasting out of the parking lot. In my rearview mirror, I could see the clerk, looking more than a little confused at the way that I left him. There was no one on the ground next to him. I parked my car on the drive. No way I was facing the garage again. As I reached the doorstep of the house, I paused, unable to make myself open it. The lights were off, and although it was a daylight outside, the house would still be full of shadows, waiting. I steeled myself. This had to stop, I told myself. Whatever it was, adrenaline, nervousness, hell, maybe even guilt arriving 16 years too late, I had to get a grab. There are no such things as ghosts. I opened the door and felt around the doorway for the light switch to banish those shadows and my stupid fears. I had just reached the edge of the plastic square and a hand had closed over mine. It was her, strong for a 70-year-old dead woman. Her face seemed almost merry as she gripped my fingers in a freezing cold hand. Push her. I screamed and slammed my other hand down on the switch. She disappeared as the lights came on. I bolted into the hallway and ran for the stairs, intending, I don't know what, to throw myself under my covers and hide, I guess. As I neared the top, a figure materialized in the shadow of the upstairs hallway. Her again. Standing where I had stood on the day that started it all, when a smug grin had sent me down the fast track to hell, her hand reached out, grasping for me, waiting for me to be within reach so she could. I tried to back up, but as I had reached the downstairs hall again, I stopped in my tracks. Every doorway was open, every curtain was closed, in every room, a different face looking out from the dark. Angry, accusing, cold, mocking. Whispers came to me from the shadows. Busher. I made a run for it. I got myself to a motel and managed to stammer out to the clerk that I wanted a room, while a young man's face stared at me from the shadows behind his head. I insisted on a room on the ground floor so there would be no stairways, no shadowy corners with cold hands reaching out. I got the clerk to go in first and turn all the lights on, and that's where I am now. I drew the curtains when dusk came so I wouldn't see them, but I can hear them outside the window. I don't know what to do. 
I'm not asking for anyone's pity. I made my choices and I don't really feel bad about them even now. I just don't know how to get out of this. I can't even sleep under the covers. I lifted the blanket and Jack was there, waiting with that same stupid grin on his face. Sixteen years later and I still wanted to shove it in. Only, I didn't think this time that I was going to do the shoving. I can't live like this. They're everywhere, waiting for me. Waiting for a staircase, a gap in traffic, even a slippery bathtub. Just waiting, looking for the opportunity, itching to push. I'm a retired FBI special agent. This one case still keeps me awake at night. Written by Postmortem33. I was in the field for almost 28 years in a special unit that deals with behavioral patterns of serial offenders. Long were the nights where we had conducted interviews with deranged people, sociopaths, psychopaths, you name it. The thing is, is that all my cases were a bit different from your regular serial killing types. There were always a few cases in a year where I didn't have any logical explanation for what had happened there and then. I've seen all kinds of crazy and all kinds of motives for why they did what they did. Some said that the voices in their head were to blame. Others said that the devil made them do it. One guy once said that he had a holy mission from God to cleanse the earth of all these sinners and so on. Another that his neighbor's cat was a goddess that liked to eat hearts. Their stone-cold faces always made me ask myself, what lied inside that mind of theirs? What could happen to you that you become this downright psychopathic killer with no respect for all living things? I guess it's like a wise man once said, we're all crazy. Some are unlucky enough to get committed into mental institutions while the lucky ones are still outside. For some, it started in their early childhood days. Having an abusive mother, you would go on to hate all women. When they would start torturing small animals and enjoy their pain, while the helpless things arrived and contorted, until giving out their final breath. Many of them always pleaded for insanity in court and it rarely held as a way of salvation. They usually seemed normal respected folks of the towns and cities that they lived in. Some had stable jobs, and nice families, and a place to go home. They would smile in family photos and have dinner parties and barbecues with friends, laugh and cheer and remember the good times. They seemed like normal people, functional people, going about their daily business. But when night fell, they would go out and prey on unsuspecting victims, bashing their heads in, are doing God knows what other vile and disgusting things. Those vile and disgusting things were what made this case a stomach-churning, gut-wrenching, and hard-to-forget shit show. I was called by a police officer friend of mine two states down, who told me that he had a really weird one on his hands. They had found two dead bodies, a man whose eyes were gouged out, 
he had been found near the woods and a woman who had her tongue cut out. There seemingly was a no connection between them, but get this, they both had dead spiders placed in their foreheads. This was the most awkward thing ever. I mean the killer already took his trophies from them, but why would they leave something behind? Anyway, I agreed to go with my partner and see how we could help the people there. Because, as my friend Tank had told me over the phone, everyone in that small community was utterly terrified, himself included. I tried to calm him down, and my buddy Travis and I cruised down there the next day. We arrived at the station and looked at the photos of the victims. They looked like they had seen a ghost right before they had died. Upon closer inspection, we noticed that on each of their right side of their abdominal muscles, there were small incisions that almost looked like insect bites, although a bit larger. The best description I've thought of was that something with scalpels for teeth might have done it. We went to see the bodies in person and asked the mortician to try and open up the incision wounds. He did it first for the man and just at the moment he pushed his very own scalpel inside, live spiders started coming out of the body. Hundreds, if not thousands of tiny little spiders invaded the morgue room and we had to call out an insect exterminator. I knew that the old saying goes like, if you wish to live and thrive, let a spider walk alive. But there were thousands of them crawling about. So, we got out of the room as fast as we could, and the exterminator came in in about an hour. Too much time, I thought. And we went back in, and we saw the whole room, and the two bodies that were laying on the table, completely covered in spider webs. Like literally, there wasn't one free inch where you could have seen through. So the guy pulled out his special vacuum cleaner for stuff like that, and he started cleaning the place up. I looked carefully at the cobwebs. I didn't know why. Probably because I was always attracted to these kind of patterns that you see in nature. And as I was looking at them, I saw something in one of them that made it stand out from the rest. It looked like there were words in it. I pulled the vacuum plug and ordered the exterminator to stop. And then I called Travis and we both inspected it. Travis... Am I losing my mind or are you seeing this too? I asked my partner. You aren't going crazy, buddy, he replied. Out of nowhere, right in front of us, we saw the cobweb scramble into words. The message read, You don't belong here. Go away or else. I remember I started shaking uncontrollably, frightened out of my mind while Travis turned white. Like all blood and color from his face had vanished, just like that. Poof. Like they weren't there in the first place. We both blinked and looked at each other, and back at the web. Nothing there. We wiped our eyes and looked at it normally. What the heck just happened? Travis asked. This is a very strange man, I told him, feeling my heart throbbing inside my chest. Hank busted through the door and told us that there's been another victim found in an alley behind the local supermarket. We all hopped into his car and we went to the location. We got there and we saw that poor guy crucified to the wall. 
his skin separated from the body, and spiders were sewn together and placed in his head like a crown. Some of them were even still moving. But get this, the sick guy who stripped him clean of his skin used it to cover him back with it, like he plastered it over his body. Hank started vomiting his guts out upon seeing the sickening and grotesque expose, and Travis and I couldn't move for a few minutes. Whoever did this was one of the most twisted people in existence. That poor, poor guy. We found out afterward that he wasn't even from town. He was just visiting some relatives for a barbecue. So we went back to the station and we were so pissed off because we didn't have any leads, any witnesses, or any CCTV footage. I mean, there were security cameras all over town, but the guy chose to do the killings exactly where he couldn't be seen. Anyway, the secretary there told us that she had an envelope for us, for Travis and me. She said that a friend of Hank's had brought it earlier when the three of us were out inspecting at the murder site. When Hank had asked who the friend was, she said that it was Thomas Williams. That was his name. At that very moment, in the exact second she had pronounced that name, Hank started shaking uncontrollably, barely managing to stand. We helped him sit on a visitor chair and I gave him a glass of water and splashed some on his face too. He looked at both of us and told us that his friend had died in a car crash over 20 years ago. They were really good friends and he had a photo with him that he kept in his office. It was from a fishing trip back in the day. So, after he got his stuff together, he went and took the photo and showed it to the lady. She confirmed that the person in the photo was the same one that had brought the envelope. She also told us that, before we left, he told her to send his best regards to Hank and his family, and that I'll be in contact very soon. Maybe to crack a cold one to remember the good old days. Hank was having a panic attack, and we called the doctor to give him a sedative, to tone him down a bit. Easy there, buddy. Take it easy, Hank. I told him while wiping his sweat on his forehead with a handkerchief. What the hell is happening here, Sam? He asked me. I just shook my head and told him that it's going to be alright, that we're going to figure this thing out. Truth be told, I had no idea what to do. With all my experience in the field, this was getting too much for me to bear. Anyway, I don't like complaining, but this was something extremely out of the ordinary. So I took the envelope and opened it carefully, and saw that it was addressed to both me and Travis. Dearest Special Agents of the FBI, You have until midnight to leave this place. There is nothing you can do to me. I am terror, I am fright, I am the demon of the night. Leave. The whole page was decorated with cobwebs and a spider was drawn in the bottom right corner as if the perpetrator wanted to let us know he meant serious business. I was in awe of everything that was going on. In the station, in the town, and in this life of mine. Hank finally got himself together and we went into his office. We didn't have any idea on what needed to be done, and we were at a loss for words. One thing was certain. Well, actually, two things. Firstly, 
what was happening was extremely bizarre and terrifying. And secondly, when we had a serial killer on the loose. Shit. The night was falling and there was a tension in the air that I couldn't quite place. I began wondering what would happen if we didn't leave before midnight. Of course, we didn't even think to give in to this psycho's demands. Remember, this was before the internet was a huge thing. Before live streams and things like that. We didn't want to get the press involved because if we did... We had to give some pretty unplausible explanations for the situation. Hank said that he wanted to go home and make sure that his family was safe. I'll be back in a half an hour or so. If anything happens, radio me in and Doug come as quickly as possible. Frank told before he got into his car. And then I heard a very high-pitched scream inside the station. We all did. Hank got back out of his car and we all went inside. A man with a black hoodie on his head was just staring at the secretary. She was just standing there, completely frozen. We didn't get to see his face and we immediately drew our guns at him. He scoffed and began laughing in a sort of morbid, low-pitched tone. And then I saw the secretary's head twisting on the right and snapping. The guy threw a spider on her face and wanted to run away, but we started shooting, firing the whole clip into him, but he didn't fall or move. He just stood there and laughed again, and then he just walked towards us. My turn now, he said while we just stood there, rendered unable to move. He started unzipping his hoodie, only to reveal a skinless upper body. His eyes were two bottomless black holes and he spoke without opening his mouth. He stood a few inches in front of us. Travis started shaking with fear and Hank managed to get a grab and shot a few more bullets into the guy. But he only pissed him off more than he already was. The killer looked at Hank and a jet black stream of spiders shot Hank straight in the face. They were crawling on him, trying to get into his mouth. Stop! I yelled, leave him alone, please. He looked at me, and the guy smiled and spiders started crawling on his face this time. There's no point in trying to stop me. I am eternal. You want that cop to live. You leave this place and stop trying to dig in any further. Understood. The spider killer said. Yes, just leave him alone, please. Travis told him. Terrified with what had just happened. We didn't know what to do, and so we did the only thing he wanted us to do. We laughed. Right before we did leave, though, he told us to never return to that city, nor were we allowed to speak to Hank for the next three years. He added that his work there is done, and that if he wanted to, he could wipe out the whole city in a matter of seconds. He just wanted to build his body again, but it takes time, he said. You see, sometimes I'm a snake, other times I'm a black cat, a crow. But at this very moment, I'm a spider. I'm a million spiders, he said. And with that, he just vanished into thin air, his clothes falling on the ground. Even to this day, I didn't know what the hell had happened. 
Out of fear, I never talked to Hank again, nor did I ever go back to that city. I guess there are things that we're not fully equipped to understand, and we should leave them alone. I checked the stats from that town. Since we left, there were no more killings, only deaths occurring from natural causes. I'm a voice actor hired to read emergency broadcasts. I don't think they were fake. Written by Max Voynich. I don't think I should be sharing this information. And for reasons that will become clear soon, it is hard to keep my identity a secret. I will obscure details that telegraph my identity too clearly. Place names, people's names, one-of-a-kind geographical features. Maybe if I had paid closer attention, I could have stopped this. Whatever this is, or at least my role in it. As I'm writing this out, I can still hear it every half an hour, like clockwork, always ending with the same refrain. No matter who is at the door, do not let them in. I first knew I wanted to be an actress the first time I stepped on stage, when I was three. A gold foil crown resting on my head crafted from yogurt lids and wrapping paper, a jar of what was supposed to be myrrh in my right hand, and an oversized cane in my left. I don't think I actually had any lines, but I can remember my parents beaming, my parents and everyone else beaming. I knew that I had to be an actress when Yuan Palmer said that I was the prettiest girl in the school after I played Beatrice in our school's production of Much Ado About Nothing. The nerves had made me throw up the night before, and I had been tempted to call in and tell the school that I was sick and that they would have to get one of the other girls to do it. Maybe Mary Percival, who knew all my lines anyway, because she had spent every night the past week rehearsing it with me. And then I started thinking that actually, Mary Percival might be very good. And that may be for the interest of not only myself, but everyone else in the play. I should actually, genuinely call in sick. But I didn't call. I didn't call in sick, and I remembered every line. When Ewan Palmer told me, I thought I was going to be sick all over again. But I wasn't. I knew what I had done on stage had made him say this, and I was suddenly aware of the power that I had had that night. And for a while, I sat smiling and thinking about every little detail I had put into my performance and whether or not the crowd had picked up on it. Of course, my accident changed all of that. I had been told to call it my accident to take ownership of the event and to stop it from feeling as though it is something that I can't control now. My parents and friends tried their hardest to convince me that I could still act and that I was still beautiful. But I could see in their eyes that, bless them, they didn't really believe it. And so I made excuses about becoming more interesting in the writing side of it all to spare them the secondhand embarrassment of watching me, post-accident, walk on a stage and watch as every member of the crowd winced in unison. And so... I stopped acting for a long time. I didn't go outside much. 
I must have read hundreds of books, but all the girls in them were beautiful, even when they weren't supposed to know that they were. I watched a lot of TV and preferred animated shows. I felt if they weren't real, then I was less conscious of the difference between us, and I wasn't so conscious about what had happened to my face. It was through this that I discovered voice acting, and I felt like I had been offered another chance. I fell back in control. So, I bought a $100 microphone and home recording setup, recorded a few monologues from my favorite shows and plays and posted them online. I built up a small portfolio, and every now and again I would receive a job offer or request. Often the request would barely pay anything, but I received a small amount from the settlement every month, and had no real cost except for food and internet. These smaller jobs began to accumulate, and before long, I had a decent portfolio and returning customers. I was in a few small web shows, some that you might have seen. But still, these gigs didn't pay much, and I was living in a tiny apartment on the edge of town, eating instant ramen and drinking cheap beer. But at least I had some control. I felt real again, as if what my accident had robbed from me, I had reclaimed. I had colleagues, a network of people who trusted and respected me. It was only a few days ago that I received a small notification on one of the freelance sites that I used. A standard username and a fairly standard request. Although the sum of money was way larger than I was used to. I took a screenshot and sent it to a voice actor friend of mine. It was an ad in the local section of one of these websites that the poster had sent directly to me. The ad itself was vague. It specified that it was an hour or so drive out of the town that I lived in and that it required a woman's voice. That was it. My friend's response was encouraging. They said that often some of the larger studios will trawl freelance sites when asked to look for a new talent. And often, those who are trawling will offer what they believe to be industry rates, not realizing that their figure is actually way higher than the reality. I needed the money. While these circumstances around the ad were unusual, the money promised would solve a lot of problems. Even with that sum of money, I could relocate to an apartment not surrounded by drunks. The message attached to the ad read, Hi, we're huge fans of your work and would love for you to come in for a couple of days this week. Best. I replied back, Hello, it's great to know you guys are fans, thank you so much. I'm more than happy to come in for a couple of days this week, but where exactly? Is transport provided? Furthermore, do you have any character notes or would you like a demo of a type of performance you might want? Sorry for all the questions. It might be easier if we call. Thanks again. They responded. No call. Character notes not needed. Rate specified includes petrol. I live in a small town with a relatively small population. However, it's a well-known fact that in the Scottish Highlands surrounding my town, there are dozens and dozens of military bases. 
These range from the official where training exercises are run and truckloads of troops will stop off at the local pub for a drink to the unofficial plots of land that don't appear on satellite images and reports of strange activity that slowly filters through the gossip mill. It looked like the location was fairly close to one of these bases down a road I had driven a few times. The road itself was long and winding cut into a shallow valley and was filled with so many twists and turns that it had earned a place for itself in local mythology. There were always accidents when there was frost, and the locals had managed to conjure up all sorts of reasons for these. I thought it was fairly evident that frost and hairpin turns don't make for easy driving, but I had heard everything from aliens to ghosts trapped in the valley. And so, I agreed to the job. I spent the morning before practicing vocal warm-ups and working on my route there. The drive there was uneventful. Thankfully, I had downloaded the map and printed it off, as reception soon grew faulty. I went up a slow incline, and then down into the valley. I could just make out a white dot in the distance, and as I grew closer, I realized that it was some sort of cottage. It would make sense for some indie studio to record in a cottage, although something about it was a little unsettling. The white coat of paint seemed brand new, unchapped, and the gravel in the drive was from a stone I hadn't seen before, a shade of brown that wasn't present in the highlands. The man who had opened the door wasn't quite what I had expected. Something about him seemed familiar, as if I had met him before, and when he shook my hand, I caught a twang in his voice that I half-recognized. But this was probably a mistake. He stank of expensive cologne, sprayed liberally, and wore sunglasses despite the overcast sky. He told me that they were excited to have me here, and that they couldn't wait for me to sink my teeth into what they had planned, using the phrase, roll of a lifetime. He gave a nod to the receptionist, who was typing away at her computer as we walked past, although she didn't look up. He took me down into the basement, which had been kitted out with bright LED lights and gray soundproofing foam, where he handed me a set of legal documents. He mentioned something about finding a colleague and left the room. I read the first few lines in the last, and the thickness of the set of papers I had been handed indicated to me that even they didn't expect me to read it all. Nothing in the document seemed out of the blue, and I signed where indicated. It took me a moment to get my bearings, and I noticed that the basement of this building seemed bigger than I had initially thought. The small room I was in was connected to a door that seemed to be the recording booth and three other doorways. Two were shut, and through the one that was open, I could just make out a long corridor. As I stood to take a look, the man came back and as he escorted me into the recording booth, I realized that I didn't know his name. He hadn't asked me mine when we had met, and he had moved straight into business talk that I had missed my opportunity. He looked at me as he closed the door and asked if I wanted anything. I was tempted to ask then, to apologize for forgetting earlier, but there was something in his manner that stopped me. A woman's voice came on, over the intercom. 
Thank you so much for coming. In front of you is a short script. We'll only be reading this today. I looked at the script in front of me and I picked it up. Judging from its weight, it was only a dozen or so pages. I squinted at the cover page and ran a thumb over the all caps title, ALERT. That was all that it said. I turned over the first page and looked at the margins to see which characters were speaking but nothing. Instead, the pages were filled with paragraphs and paragraphs of double space type. I looked back up confused. I could hear a faint buzzing coming from somewhere outside of the room. Is this it? Are there any character notes? Any cues I should be aware of? You only need to read what's in front of you. Stay calm. I assumed the stay calm was some sort of a stage direction, but I couldn't be sure. I did feel myself beginning to panic slightly, and I thought about how little I knew about where I was. I didn't tell anyone where I would be, because I had no one to tell. The script that I read was delirious and rambling. It made no sense and was compiled with contradiction upon contradiction. Characters seemed to be in two places at once, and often I would have monologues that would seem to be spoken by different people at the same time, covering places local to me in vague terms, with odd, biblical turns of phrase, with sections that sounded like invocations and repeated words. I didn't know what this was for, but it couldn't be unusable. It didn't make enough sense. You never know with freelance work, though. Often the best paychecks come from vanity projects, and so I plowed on. The script grew increasingly esoteric and strange, quoting Fruit and Crowley, Desaid and Newton and Yeats. It made me a little uncomfortable, if I'm honest. Those who listened to any of Charles Manson's speeches after he was arrested or read some sort of lunatic's manifesto will know how unnerving genuine madness really is. And this felt something like that. It was just beginning to grow to a fever pitch when I was cut off. That'll be all for today. You'll be escorted from the premises now. Same time tomorrow. Escorted from the premises? I frowned. That wasn't something that you would say to an actor. And definitely not one that you had picked up from an online ad. I heard the sound of a door open, and the clip-clip of heels down the corridor. Realizing this might be the woman, I dashed to the door and opened it. Unfortunately, she was already a long way down the corridor opposite and moving quickly. Regardless of how weird my experience was, I didn't want to embarrass myself by dashing down after her, and even then, what would I say? Would I tell her that the script had made me uncomfortable? That the term escorted from the premises seems too strong? It all seemed ridiculous, and instead, I just watched her walk away. I was a little disappointed with her silhouette, if I'm honest. The disembodied voice had meant I had expected her to look a whole lot wilder, and I was disappointed with the fact that, from behind, she seemed to look perfectly normal. She was about my height and had dark hair. The same way that you expect celebrities to be taller. I expected her to have an impossible hourglass figure and a sheer black bob, but no. She seemed to be just like me. When I think back over this day, 
I feel that maybe this was more important than I give it credit for, but I'm still not sure how. Like an itch, you can't scratch. The man came back down the stairs and noticed me, watching the woman walk away. He moved to the door quicker than I had seen him move before. Quicker than a relaxed persona, sunglasses and cologne would suggest he could, and he slammed it shut. Follow me. My mind wandered as I climbed the stairs and left the building. Something about it had put me on edge and I wasn't trying to place what it was. It hadn't been entirely unpleasant, and only a little uncomfortable towards the end. And it wasn't as if I found the woman's voice or the man threatening. I sat in my car for a while thinking. Without turning the engine on, listening to the rhythmic sound of rain beginning to fall. The tap 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 growing harder and more regular. As my windshield began covered in tiny rivulets. What had made me so uncomfortable slowly dawned on me. The whole place had felt fake. Like a film set or an empty stage, it wasn't lived in. There was no wear and tear and everything, from the chair that I sat in to the door that I had come in through, had seemed brand new and factory fresh. As if just moments before I'd arrived, they had been pulling the shrink wrap off. As I mulled this over, I drove slowly back up towards the town. The rain was falling heavily now and I had to put the fog lights on to cut through the half-light of the evening. There was no one else around for miles, and the wild grass and shrubs of the highlands stretched on and on in every direction around me. Something, maybe thunder, boomed in the distance. I kept driving, checking my rear view to see my own face looking back at me. My eyes and the ugly scar that ran from my broad on my chin dividing my face into two mismatched halves. That sound again, except it was closer, and it sounded less like thunder. I looked in my wing mirrors a little frightened now, and made out nothing behind me. I'd have seen it if there was, at least that's what I told myself. I didn't want to go too much faster, and admit to myself that something was wrong but I increased my speed slightly and checked my wing mirrors more and more often. The sound again. I had been wrong the first time. It wasn't thunder at all. It was a low, rumbling sound, but it was much closer. I increased my speed a little more. I checked my rearview mirror and for a second I thought I could make out a pale flash amongst the gray shrubbery, like a body Someone, something, running across the grass and up the shallow valley, running towards me. And then it disappeared, as if it had thrown itself to the ground. And I couldn't help but floor the pedal and drive as fast as I could away. Tires shrieking in the rain, drenched in sweats and clutching the steering wheel so tight that the tips of my fingers tingled. I didn't sleep well that night. For a while, I found comfort in the sounds of the drunks outside my window, shouting as they stumbled up and down the street. I could make out the voice of Pete, the way his S's whistled due to his missing teeth, and the sound of Charlie's belch, and hear Tommy shout in his thick accent as he stumbled into the bins on account of his milky eyes, ruined by age, like marbles covered in PVA glue. 
but around one or two a.m., they stopped altogether. Usually, they continued into the early hours, but that night, they stopped simultaneously. Instead of fading out one by one, the noise stopped at once. I heard the sounds of their footsteps get fainter and was surprised at the speed they had all moved away at. If I didn't know better, I'd have thought that they were running away. I woke in the morning exhausted and wasn't entirely sure when I had fallen asleep. It felt as if I had only closed my eyes for a second, but there was a daylight poking through my curtains. I checked my watch. Crap. My second visit was in 50 minutes time. Crap, crap, crap. I'm not sure I even had time to think about last night's events. As I rushed through my morning routine, brushing my teeth as I got dressed, blasting myself with deodorant, necking scalding coffee as I threw my phone charger in a bag. I drove as quick as I could, and in the light of a new day, the landscape that had put me on edge last night seemed to have dissolved with the night. As I pulled into the cottage, I noticed a few figures in the distance. They were easy to spot as they were all wearing high-vise jackets, which stood out against the muted colors of the grass and mountains. I looked closer. They were wearing high-fives jackets and carrying something big and... The man from yesterday opened the door and saw me looking at the high-fives. Well, I assumed he did at least, but his sunglasses still covered half his face. Hey, let's not waste time. In. Uh, of course, I was late. Again, uh, there was something familiar in his voice and accent that I knew, but I had no time to puzzle it over as I was shepherd inside. I hurried in, nodded to the receptionist, and walked on the stairs towards the studio. The door was already open for me today, and a new script was on the table. The woman made me spend a while perfecting my tone of voice. Apparently, I sounded too stressed. Perhaps it because I was running late and hadn't had time to do any of the vocal warm-ups I usually like to do before a job. The second day's script was stranger. They had me reading all sorts of strange alerts and broadcast as slowly and calmly as possible. It was a jarring change from the previous day's ramblings and the two recordings seemed so at odds with each other. I wasn't sure that they could be for the same project. I had no idea what this could be. I thought perhaps it was providing a voiceover for a viral marketing campaign, or for a top-secret portion of a popular show or movie series. But I knew in my heart that both of these options weren't true, and there was something just too strange about the whole thing. There was much less to read today, and instead, the woman was focused on ensuring that my voice was consistently relaxed and calming. About an hour in there, and there was a commotion outside. I heard several voices outside my door, and the sound of her heels clipping down the corridor quickly, as if she was in a rush to attend to something. I opened the door just a crack and saw the man who had let me in hurry down a corridor to my right evidently following the source of the noise and commotion. Slowly, opening the door inch by inch, I moved out into the room at the bottom of the stairs. I approached the corridor the woman had marched down, and I watched it for a while. 
I could hear the voices getting fainter and fainter, echoing from far away. With my heart in my mouth, I decided to move a little further into the corridor. Although the voices were faint now, I could still hear them just, and I knew that if they were to come back this way, I would be able to hear it. So, making sure not to make any noise, I started walking. I had thought perhaps the underground section had been a studio, but as I walked further, I realized that it was far, far bigger. The map in my head had three corridors that maybe had several rooms for equipment and editing, but this was on another scale entirely. The corridor that I was walking down had dozens of corridors branching off of it, and each of these corridors seemed to stretch out for hundreds of meters, intersected by other corridors that I could only assume stretched just as far if not further. Their dirty cream wallpaper blanketed and sterile white light. Whatever this was, underground spread out like a web or a fungus in every direction. Part of me tried to rationalize this. Perhaps this was an old boarding school. Although the hallways looked too clinical. Or an old wing of a hospital. But why have a hospital this far out in the middle of nowhere? Or simply, a large studio filled with room after room after room. I heard the voices grow louder and I stopped in my tracks. They were coming back this way and fast. Trying to make as little noise as possible, I retraced my steps and hurried back into the recording room. The session took another hour or so to finish, take after excruciating take. It's beyond agonizing to be told for the twelfth time that your voice isn't quite soothing enough and rallying yourself to keep it soothing while under that much stress is tough. There was one phrase in particular that they had me repeat over and over again, until they must have had about 100 takes. They buzzed me out the same as before, but this time, I heard the woman's heels ascending the stairs, and as I exited, I thought I would catch a sight of her, but instead, I only saw her legs and torso, she turned at the sound of the door opening to face me, her face obscured from view by the low ceiling above me. She stood this way, facing me but not seeing me for a while, before continuing up the stairs. I followed her. I was done with this place with their agonizing demands and strange architecture. I tried to catch the receptionist's eyes as I left, but she was typing away, focused on the screen in front of her. The evening was darker than yesterday's and I realized that I had been below ground for far longer than I had anticipated. Again, when I sat in the car, I took a moment to think over the previous few hours. I thought about the long, seemingly endless web of corridors underground and what the doors that punctuated them held. I thought about how new the cottage seemed and the hi-fi's jackets in the distance I thought about how the whole thing seemed like an empty stage, and the way the man who would let me in seemed to be playing a part in how I couldn't see his eyes, and how the receptionist was typing even though her screen was black and... even though her screen was black. I shook the thought from my head right now. I needed to focus on getting home. The experience of the previous day still had me shaken. And as I drove, I used the breathing exercises they had taught me in therapy. I tried to exclusively focus on driving and breathing, 
and counted each breath in and each breath out. For a while it worked. The evening grew darker. And then there was the sound again. A low boom. Close. I checked the rearview mirror. This time, there weren't many clouds in the sky at all. There was no way this could be thunder. The clouds seemed to be leaving the sky and rolling in off the lips of the valley, like dry ice slowly moving towards me. It was a drizzling now, and my windscreen wipers started, occasionally moving back and forth with a quiet squeak. This was all that I could hear for a while, watching the fog grow closer, trying to find a station on the radio but only coming across static until I heard that noise like thunder. The sound was back, louder than ever, and the car shuddered. I slammed on the brakes and sat for a moment in the silence. I didn't move, and all I could hear was the sound of my ragged breathing, shaken and uneven. It was like I had hit something with my car, maybe a rabbit or a bird. I thought about getting out and checking, but something, something inside me kept me inside the vehicle. I checked the rearview mirror again, and this time I'm certain that I saw something. Something pale moved at the edge of the fog. I saw it for only a second before it was covered by the mist in the dark. And then I saw it again, closer this time, moving unnaturally, taking jagged steps before throwing itself down into the ground. I put my foot on the gas and felt a lump form in my throat as the car stalled for a second and then started, the engine straining under my demands. The car sped up, but the road that I was on seemed to go on forever, the distance obscured by fog, each turn slowing me down, so that I felt like my car was on some sort of conveyor belt. I could feel beads of sweat run down my back, and every now and again I would look in the rearview mirror to see my eyes wide and panicked, and shapes moving in the fog. As they grew closer, there was a new noise, halfway between a rasp and a bark, and my hands started to shake. I prayed that the car wouldn't stop, that I wouldn't be stuck as the fog completely closed in, and all I could do was wait for them to catch up with me, and thank God it didn't. I know what I saw. I tried to think about what they could be, tricks of the light, animals seeming closer than they really were. But I know, those shapes could only be one thing. They were unmistakably bodies. Human bodies. Whether or not they were people, I don't know. But the way they moved, they could only have been one thing. The thought played over and over again in my head for the rest of the drive home. And every bump in the road made me freeze for a second in fear. I parked across the road from my flat and ran to my front door, fumbling the keys in my desperation to get in. I double-locked my door and took a kitchen knife into my room, where I sat with my back pressed against the wall. I didn't know what was going on, yet, but something was wrong. It was like a fever dream, and I felt like I only had some of the pieces of the puzzle. Try as I might to find a rational solution to all of these occurrences, the tunnels, the bodies in the fog, the strange script. I couldn't. I didn't sleep again that night and instead 
spent the time googling facts about the local area. I tried to see if there were any boarding schools or hospitals nearby, but any that were had been nearby were miles and miles away from the strange cottage. There were, however, military bases nearby, some official and on the books, and some unofficial, only locatable through secondhand accounts on conspiracy forums. The drunks started yelling and making noise a little earlier tonight, as if they were trying to anesthetize something to dull some sense of horror from yesterday. Although, perhaps, I was projecting. I suppose all drunks are trying to numb something in one way or another. I found their shouts comforting, I guess in the sense that I wasn't completely alone on the street, and that human contact, if I wanted it, was only a stone's throw away. Tommy's voice, his thick accent that I realized I'd heard earlier today, that had tried to mask itself but couldn't help giving itself away in the vowels. The accent that I had heard from the man who had let me into the cottage. The man wearing sunglasses despite the overcast sky. The man wearing sunglasses to cover his milky eyes. It couldn't have been Tommy. He couldn't have made his way from the street corner to the off-license without stumbling over once or twice, let alone make the journey out into the highlands. Could he? Then again, unlike the night before, they all stopped simultaneously. Part of me wanted to run to the window and check, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Instead, all I did was clutch my knife tighter, subconsciously angling it towards the street outside. And then there was one final shout, different to the others. Louder, scared. And the street was silent. The silence hung for a while, barely masked by the faint sounds of cars far away. And then I began to hear it. It was a wet, rasping sound, like the sound of someone choking. It grew slowly louder and closer, moving down the street and towards my building, towards me. I sat there, feeling sweat beat on my forehead listening to the sound of what I realized then was breathing from outside my window. It stopped moving, that is. It stopped getting louder and closer outside my flat. It was as if whatever it was was stood outside my block of flats, staring up at the window and waiting. I made the decision to take a peek, to see if this was just my mind playing tricks on me, or if this really was something more sinister. Slowly, I edged towards the window, not pulling the curtains but kneeling so my eyeline was level with the windowsill, and with one hand gently moving the bottom of the curtain knob. I could see the low wall that covered the small terrace of the building, and the bin bags by the gate, and then... something pale... I pulled back, moving my hand with such speed that the curtain flew up for a moment, just enough for me to make out something in the street, something with dark eyes looking straight up at me, waiting. I moved quickly, grabbing my bed and heaving it to my bedroom door, blocking myself in. I spent the rest of the night sat in a corner opposite the door, back pressed against the wall, occasionally shifting my eyes to the curtain. Whatever had seen me had grown excited and I could hear the breathing get a little faster 
and a little deeper. I sat and listened for hours and turning the knife over and over in my hand. I decided that tomorrow I would go to the local library and see if I could figure out a rational solution to all of this, to put all the pieces together in a way that would explain them and make them all go away. I thought of the dark eyes outside and the face that they were set in, the face that I couldn't begin to admit I recognized, a face that no one could forget. I could just picture the pale form outside, gurgling and choking, never taking its eyes from my window. The breathing continued. I slipped in and out of sleep, half dozing. I dreamt of the seemingly endless tunnels below the cottage, of the pale shapes in the mist, and milky-eyed drunks outside my window. I was woken by something that changed everything. A voice on a tannoy, loud and filtered through static, remnants from the blitz. Our town still had emergency broadcast systems in place, tested still once a year. I strained to listen to the voice. I recognized the soft accent and slight lisp from somewhere. And in my dazed state, I couldn't place it until... Until they knew exactly where it was from. It was my voice. Playing from every tannoy speaker on every street in the town was my voice. It was the recording from yesterday. This is an emergency broadcast. Do not panic. All citizens are to lock their doors and gather family and friends in one room. Do not let anyone out of your sight. Stay put. Help is coming. Do not, under any circumstances, leave your location. Do not trust voices from outside, no matter how familiar they sound. Help is coming. This is an emergency broadcast. Most importantly, no matter who is at your door, do not let them in. No matter who is at your door, do not let them in. I was a part of an experiment to see the afterlife. What I saw still haunts me. Written by Christopher Maxim. Alright Jack, are you ready? After being strapped on by the orderlies, an older gentleman with a white coat stepped over and looked down at me as my back caressed the cold metal slab I was fastened to. I presumed this was Dr. Covenwood, the lab's head of operations. Um, I guess so. This was risky business. I would be humanly injected and gassed with various chemicals to render me medically dead. And then, I would be revived to report my findings as part of a study on near-death experiences and the afterlife. If I survived... $5,000 would be deposited into my bank account as payment. Don't worry, Jack. We've done this dozens of times so far and have yet to lose a single soul. You'll be fine. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This wasn't legal by any stretch of the imagination. No one in their right mind would have even agreed to participate in such a study. But I was truly desperate. The pandemic had left me jobless and the bills were piling up. 
an old college buddy who works for the lab knew about my situation and reached out to recruit me for the project. Alright Jack, I'll be in the next room behind the one-way glass. You'll be able to hear me over the intercom. Once we start, there is a no going back. This is your last chance. Are you absolutely sure that you want to go through with this? I mulled it over for a moment, but the choice was clear. There were certainly other options at my disposal for recouping my financial losses, but that wasn't the only reason I agreed to take part in the study. The real reason I was risking my life ran much deeper than that. Let's do it, doctor. A smile spread across my face. That's the spirit. Dr. Covenwood scurried out of the control room and fired up the intercom as quickly as he could, probably to get the ball rolling before I could change my mind. Remember, Jack, you'll only be gone for 30 seconds, and then we'll bring you back. Still, it may seem a lot longer to you once you're, well, wherever it is you're going. Time dances to the beat of its own drum in some places. Retain what information you can upon waking and tell us what it is you've seen. I nodded at the camera hanging above me from the ceiling. Alright Jack, this is it. See you on the other side. I remembered bracing myself for death, but it's all fuzzy after that. Bits and pieces of memory floating in a vast ocean of consciousness. I can only recall the sensation of falling and the occasional voice whispering in my ear, though I could not for the life of me make out what it was saying. When I finally came to, the scene in front of me took form and revealed my surroundings. However inexplicable it may seem, I was in what appeared to be the lobby of a large building. There were hardwood floors, lavish staircases, and gorgeous rays of light flooding the room from tall, stained-glass windows on every side of me. Directly in my line of sight was a desk and what appeared to be a receptionist. He looked up and smiled. You must be Jack. Please, come with me. In an instant, without even getting up from his seat, the man was in front of me. Before I could react, he took me by the arm and we appeared somewhere upstairs by the balcony in front of a door. Here you are, room 371. The overseer will see you now. And just like that, he had vanished again. Thanks, I guess. Overwhelmed by everything, I didn't enter the room right away, and instead leaned over the railing and surveyed the area. That's when I noticed a plethora of shelves lining the walls, each with their own collection of jars, a soft light emanating from within. I wanted to study them further, but was cut off by a booming voice that echoed through the hall. Come in, Jack. I haven't got all day. It was coming from room 371. Not wishing to further test the patience of whatever being was summoning me, I opened the door and I walked in. Please, Jack, have a seat. Sitting at a desk in the room was a clean-cut man in turn-of-the-century attire gesturing at the chair in front of me. I sat and the man stared me down. If he was trying to intimidate me, it was working. All right, on with it. I know you must have questions. Fire away. 
It was right, I did. Where are we? Me chuckled. You humans are so predictable. Well, for lack of a self-descriptor, this is what you would refer to as the hereafter. A place where all souls go upon expiration. So, heaven is a cathedral. He chuckled again. Who said anything about heaven? There is no good or bad place. Just this. And no, it's not a cathedral. It appears different to every departed soul. You see it as a cathedral. Another might see it as a monastery, or even a small cottage tucked away in the hills. Whatever peaceful scenery makes the transition easier. He adjusted himself in his chair, raised his hand, and lifted a single finger. One more question, Jack, and then we move on to more pressing matters. This was my chance. The reason I was there in the first place. Can I see my wife and daughter? He didn't expect that, turning his chair to face me. Ah, I see. Now I understand. Is that why you joined Dr. Covenwood's little study group? That I wouldn't have predicted. He saw the surprise at my expression. Oh yes, Jack. I know all about the good doctor and his trials. He works for us. My surprise turned to confusion. Works for you? What do you mean? The overseer raised his hand again and snapped his fingers. All at once, we were transported to another space. It was small and white, too white, and the lighting was strange. Brighter than your average room, but still dimmer than a hospital. It was off-putting. And to make matters worse, I was strapped to another table, completely immobile in the center of the room. The overseer stood by and picked up tools from a rolling cart. Needles, blades, among other sharp utensils. I can't believe a human would risk his own life on the off chance that he might be reunited with loved ones. It's admirable, I suppose, but no, Jack. You will not see Charlotte and Leslie. We have far more important business to attend to. My heart was pounding. I had no idea what he was up to, but I knew it couldn't be any good. What's going on? What are you doing? He cracked a smile. Well, Jack, what the good doctor had failed to let you in on was that our agreement involves him sending us wayward souls. In exchange, we offer him information about our world. He walked around to the opposite side of me with the cart and pushed it up against the table. I winced and let out a small scream. He laughed. You see, Jack, human souls are a delicacy here. The taste is so intoxicating. He closed his eyes and trembled. We were never meant to devour souls, but we've been here for so long. Billions of years, maybe more. We, like all things, need a stimulation. And to that end... We face but one obstacle. The pesky laws of this realm dictate that we can neither lie nor take what isn't ours. It's a failsafe of the creator's design, but in place to keep us from harming you, making it physically impossible to extract your soul without consent. You must give it to us willingly. Though frightened, I mustered up enough courage to respond. 
Why would I do something like that? He replied with a horrible grin. That's the beauty of our arrangement. When a normal soul dies, we give them the option. Let us cut you open and take your soul. Or live in a jar for all of eternity. There's almost no incentive to hand it over. So, almost everyone chooses the latter option. In your case, your time is an op. The doctor is waiting on the other side to revive you. But I won't let him unless you give me what I want. Time will remain still until your soul is mine. Your 30 seconds will never end. He licked his lips in anticipation. If you want to go back, just say the word. Otherwise, get comfortable. It was a lot to process. Still, none of it mattered. Seeing my wife and daughter again was the only thing keeping me going. Knowing that I couldn't be with them eliminated any incentive I would have had to continue living. No, you can't have it. I'll stay. His smile vanished as he threw the cart and grabbed me by the shoulders, placing his face directly over mine. His eyes were now red and his mouth full of dagger-like teeth that overlapped one another in a grotesque pattern. You will give me your soul, and I will rip away every last fiber of your flesh to get it. He dug a silver blade into my chest and drooled over the wound. It was like battery acid. Worse than any pain I had ever felt before. I screamed in agony. He backed away, wiped his chin and his face returned to normal. Sorry about that. I got a little carried away. Still, you will agree to my terms or suffer further torment. The pain was immense, but I would not bow to him. No, I refuse. His grin continued. You misunderstand, Jack. The torture you will experience is not of a physical nature. He snapped his fingers and we were transported again. Somewhere else entirely. I was alone. In a familiar forest. One just outside town where we like to camp from time to time. The sun was setting as the evening drew near. The air was still and the wildlife quiet. This was the night they had died. What do you think, Jack? I would say it looks almost identical. The overseer appeared before me. What the hell is this? His lips stretched wide across his cheeks. No, just a recreation of the events that led up to your family's death. I looked at him in disbelief. You remember, don't you? You were out here gathering firewood while they played by the lake. A tear rolled down my cheek. Stop it! He continued. When Leslie fell, bumped her head in the dock, and then sank deep beneath the water, Charlotte called out to you, but you were nowhere to be found. It happened as he spoke of it. Jack, she fell in. Jack, help. My God, she's unconscious. Jack. Just as I did that night, I dropped the branches on my hand and ran as quickly as I could towards the lake. Recreation or not, I couldn't ignore my family. Your wife jumped in to save her, but her legs were far too weak to swim. The overseer appeared at every tree I passed, his voice staying with me every step of the way. 
The physical therapy worked wonders, but she had only been out of her wheelchair for a month. He was right. On her way to work, Charlotte was struck by a drunk driver. She had survived, but her spine suffered a lot of damage. The doctors weren't sure if she would walk again. This camping trip was supposed to be a celebration. It was the first thing Charlotte wanted to do when she was upright again. Stop it. Charlotte continued to call out to me. Jack! Jack! Her voice was muffled by the water she was treading. There was a sickening gurgle in between her outbursts. A gut-wrenching sound that haunted me every nightmare for months to come and rang in my ears even after waking. You arrived at the lake, but it was too late. I ran over, tears wet in my face, and pulled Charlotte and Leslie from the water. The overseer stayed close and observed. I tried my best to administer chest compressions and CPR, but it was no use. My girls were dead, and I could do nothing but sob over the corpses. All right, Jack. Time for round two. The overseer snapped his fingers and we were back in the forest. Soon enough, I heard Charlotte's voice once again crying out for help. To my dismay, the sequence of events had begun again. I turned to the overseer standing by my side and took a swing but there was a no connection. My fist stopped inches from his smug face, halted by an unseen forest. He cackled in response. Why are you doing this? You know why, Jack. Give me your soul or submit to this existence. You will be stuck here forever. Left to relive the worst night of your life again and again. I ran to the lake, faster this time. But still, when I arrived, they were gone. That's right, Jack. No matter what happens, this will be the conclusion. You will never make it in time. Never. We appeared back in the forest. What will it be, Jack? I ran again. The overseer followed. No, I won't do it. I can save them this time. I know I can. The overseer's eyes became red as he moved from tree to tree. Then suffer. Charlotte continued to call out for me, and I continued to run. After it was done, it started again, and again, and again. All the while, the overseer stayed and watched and laughed. Eventually, I had cried myself dry. I pressed on anyway, determined to save them, even if it was all part of an elaborate illusion. I needed this, more than the overseer knew. Eventually, he interrupted. Stop, Jack. I ignored him at first. Jack, stop. I ran as fast as I could, Charlotte's voice as my beacon, while on my way to another lakeside funeral. Stop now! The overseer stepped in front of me. The scene around us had vanished and we were now surrounded by darkness, a mysterious place devoid of any and all light. If you truly insist on continuing this rundown memory lane, then I think it's time we change some things. Have fun, Jack. This will be your life now. He snapped his fingers and I was back in the woods. This time, I was completely alone and a dark fog hung above the forest canopy. 
cloudy and still. Focused, I ran past the trees, but Charlotte's voice never met my ear. Something was amiss. I arrived at the lake moments later and was greeted with the usual horrific sight. Charlotte and Leslie faced down on the surface of the water. I pulled them out as I had done many times before, but something changed when their bodies had touched the shore. They stood up. Charlotte and Leslie's lifeless bodies now stood upright before me, eyes darker than the deep abyss they were pulled from. Water spilled from their mouth as they walked toward me. Charlotte then spoke. You killed us, Jack. You killed us. I backed away in terror, sobbing the whole way. Charlotte, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Leslie stepped ahead. Why didn't you save me, Daddy? I fell to my knees as they approached. I love you both so much and I miss you terribly. Please forgive me. I never meant for this to happen. Charlotte leaned over and put a cold hand on my head. You lived. You don't deserve forgiveness on top of that. She pressed her lips to mine and the taste of death coated my tongue. I tried to disconnect, but she forced me against her with brute strength. Her arms wrapped tightly around my head. And then she began sucking the air from my lungs. Leslie chimed in. This is how we felt, Daddy. We couldn't breathe. Now you can be like us. I struggled and struggled, but couldn't break free. Just before losing the last drop of air in my lungs, something happened. It was faint at first, but then grew to an audible whisper. I recognized it as it crept into my ear. It was the same disembodied voice that followed me to the afterlife. I can now tell that it was that of Charlotte. The real Charlotte. Save us, Jack. I didn't know what she meant. Please, Jack. You have to make a deal with the overseer. Make a deal, okay. I could do that. By some miracle, I was able to rip myself away and inhale as much oxygen as I could in one breath. Then, before the corpses could attack again, I called out to the overseer. Okay, I'm ready to bargain. The dead versions of Charlotte and Leslie vanished. The sky opened up, revealing a full moon. Its dim light soaked small ripples in the lake as the overseer walked up from behind. Had a change of heart, have we? I took another deep breath. Charlotte's whisper was still with me, guiding me the rest of the way. He can't lie. Ask him some questions. Okay, I'll give you my soul, but first, I have questions. He rolled his eyes. Fine, on with it then. Ask him about the jarred souls. What he does with them. What do you do with the souls once they're jarred? He squinted at me suspiciously. Where's this coming from, Jack? I was firm in my reply. Just answer me. He clenched his teeth. Fine. For the most part, they stay untouched in their jars on their shelves. But sometimes we take them out and ask again for consent. Ask how? 
How do you do that? Torture. His eyes widened at the word. Of course, Jack. What other way is there? Ask about us. What about Charlotte and Leslie, then? Do you torture them? He leaned in and snickered. Yes. The same as I'm doing to you now. They relive this night, just as you have. Your wife is strong, but I'll break her. And then their souls will be mine, just as yours will be. A matching set if there ever was one. My blood was boiling. I wanted to lash out, but Charlotte's voice soothed me. Save us, Jack. The pieces clicked into place. All right, I'm going to give you a choice. The overseer scoffed at me. You're going to give me a choice? Yes. I can guarantee you that Charlotte won't give in to your head games and neither will I. Not so long as we have each other. You can either keep trying and torture us until the end of time. Or, if you have better things to attend to, and I'm sure you do, you can let me go. He looked shocked. Let you go? I continued. No more torturing my wife and daughter and allow the doctor to revive me. When I die, my soul is yours to do with as you please. It's the only guarantee that you'll get from any of us. He stood back and pondered for a moment. You make a compelling argument, Jack. Normally, I wouldn't even consider a deal like this, but I've wasted enough time on you three as it is. As such, here is my counteroffer. I'm feeling generous, so I'll offer you two years on Earth with your soul intact, and your family will rest during that time. Then you will die, and I will retrieve all three of your souls. Your familial bond can serve as consent for the lot of you. There was no way that I would accept those terms. But Charlotte's voice chimed in. Take the deal, Jack. It'll be fine. We'll have two years to find a way out. I didn't like it, but I had to listen to my wife. She always knew best. Okay. You have yourself a deal. The overseer smiled and then snapped his fingers. I awoke in the lab to Dr. Covenwood at my side, tending to the wound in my chest left by the overseer. Oh good, you're awake. Knowing the hand that he had played in this, I looked up at him in disgust. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, Jack. It's just the way it has to be. This research is vital to the progression of mankind. He finished bandaging me up, undid my straps, and backed away, probably expecting a fist to the face. You're just lucky I was able to make a deal with the overseer to protect my family. I stood up, and Dr. Covenwood stepped out and into the control room, opting to speak through the intercom. Actually, Jack, that was all a part of the plan. One soul at a time used to cut it. But as of late, the overseer wants more. He let out a loud sigh before continuing. There's no way out of this, I'm afraid. In two years' time, you'll be done for. I hope you understand. The sound of tapping away at the keyboard came through the speaker, followed by a voice. Charlotte's voice. Save us, Jack. My heart sank. 
I used old recordings of your wife and created a simple program that would allow me to alter my voice to sound like hers. Everything I said over the intercom, you were able to hear on the other side. I'm so sorry, Jack. Oh my god. What have I done? There is something wrong with the local coyotes. Written by Casey Were Alien. Hey everyone, um, if you guys didn't know already, I have a new podcast that is available just wherever you can get your podcast. Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. Um, links will be down in the description. New uh, podcasts will be posted every single week, along with like a compilation video that will go up on the main channel. So check those out, guys. I know a lot of people have been asking, so I hope you guys all enjoy. And um, enjoy today's story, too. It's a good one. Thanks, everybody. I hope I'm wrong, but something seems seriously wrong with uh, the local coyotes. I couldn't sleep the other night, so I decided to go on a late night drive. For context, I live in a very rural western state and it's not uncommon for towns to be hours apart from each other. I decided to head towards the abandoned nuclear site. That's about two hours out of my town. It is a nice, quiet drive and you can drive out into the hills and see the stars in a way that is impossible, even in a small town. The drive started normally enough. It was calm and quiet, pretty much exactly what I wanted to calm my mind and tire me out. About 30 miles out of town, my radio started making strange noises. I had kept the volume low, just because I was enjoying the quiet. But suddenly, a roar of static and voices filled my cab. Now, I drive an older truck, so things randomly going haywire isn't totally unusual. But I've never really heard of a radio suddenly gaining a life of its own and screaming to the world. The sudden blast of noise scared me, causing me to jerk the steering wheel. As I slid to the side of the road, I caught something out of the corner of my eye. There was a large figure off to the left-hand side of my truck. As my truck got closer, everything seemed to go in slow motion. The monstrous figure arched its back, letting out a scream unlike anything I had ever heard before. Its legs were almost still-like, thin and tall, while gangly arms swung like pendulums as it bellowed again. What I assumed were its eyes flashed a piercing light as it craned its head towards me. I gripped the steering wheel even tighter as my truck veered into the barrel pit that I had failed to see earlier in the dark as if my luck could not get any worse. As I closed my eyes, I realized that the monster before me had been standing in the pit. I closed my eyes and waited for the crunching of the truck's grill as its shadow loomed over me. I sat there, bracing for the sound of crunching metal to echo through the empty roadway, but it never came. Once the gravel had quieted under my wheels... 
I opened my eyes. The ditch before me laid empty. There was no sign of the monstrosity that I had seen just a few moments before. The truck was still running and everything seemed fine. I had just started to relax and question my sanity when pain's yipping slowly sounded from underneath my truck. I gathered what shaking resolve I had left, along with a tire iron, and slowly got out of the truck. Using my phone as a flashlight, I carefully looked under my truck. Two white orbs peered back at me as I moved the light under the cab. I dropped my phone and jumped back as the pain cries intensified. I stood there with my tire iron raised, waiting for whatever monster it was to crawl out and attack me. I stood there for what seemed like ages as the cries slowly quieted down. As I was grabbing my phone, I heard a small and very weak cough coming from under my truck. Feeling brave, I once again decided to look under the truck. And to my surprise, staring back at me was a small coyote pup. His eyes glimmered white as he turned to look at my light. My heart sank as I saw him cough weakly and try to stand, but to no avail. I don't know what came over me, but impulsively I climbed into the cab of my truck and grabbed an old t-shirt from the floorboards. Without hesitation, I found myself crawling under the truck and through the sagebrush and gravel to save a tiny coyote who just minutes earlier had managed to scare the ever-living crap out of me. The tiny creature stared at me, half terrified as I reached for him. He let out one last ear-piercing shriek as I set the shirt on him and pulled him out. He was alert, but his body felt limp in my arms. Terrified that I had broken his back, I quickly searched the nearest wildlife vet to my phone. I set the coyote on the floor of the cab as I looked at the options. There was a vet about two hours away that specialized in wildlife care. But with a little more scrolling, I realized that there was a vet even closer. The search said that it would be four hours away taking the main roads. But having grown up in this area, I knew there was a shortcut through the old nuclear site. The roads had long been abandoned, but they were drivable, especially in an old four-wheel drive. I looked down at the coyote as I climbed back into the driver's seat, and for a split second I wondered if this really was what I saw on the road. As another weak cough escaped its lips, I threw the truck into drive without a second thought. As the truck climbed out of the barrel pit, I noticed hundreds of white eyes watching us. Every time the truck moved and the light of the headlights shifted, it was as though new eyes had just appeared. I have never known coyotes to be true pack animals, but I guessed caring for the wounded is a cross-species experience. My engine roared as we neared the site and my new furry friend laid quiet as I scanned the roadside for the dirt trail that would lead us to our destination. The wind echoed through the abandoned buildings on either side of us as we sped through. 
Every now and then in the window, I would catch the reflection of what looked to be a set of glowing eyes. But I reassured myself that it was just my headlights. I could see the turnoff getting closer, and we nearly missed it as a bellowing screech echoed off the crumbling buildings. I hit the gas as I glanced in the rearview mirror. Behind us stood another one of the grotesque creatures that I had seen earlier. A spindly arm reached out and grabbed the tailgate of the truck, ripping it off one of its hinges. I took the turn far too fast and the tiny coyote and I went bumbling through the brush and rocks off the trail. Fearing the creature was still behind us, I did my best to correct our course and get us back to the dirt road. But in the chaos, I managed to lose all sense of direction. I could see the outline of the buildings behind us and the open range in front of us. The nuclear site was huge and without getting closer, there was no way to tell where we actually were. No longer seeing any sign of the monster, I decided to stop the truck and get my bearings. If we had tried to backtrack, we could have ended up right back in the creature's clutches. If we continued forward, we had the option of being lost in the desert and probably dying out there. I tried to decide what to do when I heard a strange popping coming from the passenger side of the truck. I flinched as I realized how hard the ride had to have been for the coyote. There was no way that off-roading was any sort of comfortable for him in the shape that he was in. The strange popping noise happened again, and I looked down at my new friend. I was horrified as I watched his tiny body writhe and pop. The joints that were once limp seemed to snap into place, and it looked as though they were elongating as I stared in abject horror. I didn't have any time to process what was happening, because demonic howls and white eyes seemed to surround the truck. Without a second thought, I threw the truck into gear and barreled it deeper into the desert, driving in no particular direction other than away. I noticed fur suddenly filling my passenger seat. A deep, grumbling whine filled the cab. By the time that I looked back up, a boulder had filled the once empty space in front of the truck. I turned the wheel as hard as I could, somehow managing to avoid colliding head-on with the boulder, but still managing to lose my driver's side mirror in the process. Knowing that we were heading right back into the thick of the creatures, I slammed down on the grass. If they were going to get me, I wasn't going to go down without a fight. Slamming through sagebrush and rocks, I was shocked by the vast emptiness. There wasn't a single monster in sight. Instinctively, I drove in the direction I expected the road to be. The desert seemed silent but for the hammering of my engine. By the time that my tires hit the ruts of the dirt road, I had almost forgotten about the coyote riding with me. As I got back on the path, I slowed down to check on it. Not only had I hit a coyote, I had just put him through a whirlwind of a truck ride that may or may not have been caused by a wild hallucination on my part. I pulled the truck to a stop as I saw the familiar decrepit buildings alongside the roadside and I looked down at him. When I did, 
I was shocked by what was on my floorboards. Fur everywhere and long limbs bent at unnatural angles. As my gaze wandered up, the radio roared to life once again. Scaring me so badly, I hit the gas almost instinctively. Without realizing what I had done, I looked up and saw two wild, white eyes staring and a large maw filled with saber-like teeth right in front of my face. As I screamed, it let out a hellish howl, loud enough to crack my windshield. I jerked the wheel and we managed to collide with a large cement building. My face slammed into the steering wheel as we crashed through the cement outer walls of the building. I could hear the creature's screeches as the truck continued on course, finally ending its journey when we had slammed into a large metal box. I started drifting in and out of consciousness. The sound of the engine hummed on as I watched more of these monsters tearing the passenger door off. They bellowed as they dragged their companion out of the truck. When I awoke next, I was in a hospital room. There were police and doctors standing around me, covered in lead panels and protective equipment. It was then that I learned at least part of the truth surrounding the site. The locals had always been told that the site was abandoned because of a lack of funding. According to the officer who was questioning me, that wasn't at all true. That nuclear site was the site of one of America's first nuclear meltdowns. It's only true nuclear disaster. I guess back in the 60s, they were doing experiments with breeder reactors. Someone made a mistake and the control rod was pulled too far out, throwing the reactor into a full meltdown. Several people were killed. But given the nature of the experiment, the government quickly jumped in and they started a cover-up. Their actions would later inspire how the Soviets addressed the Chernobyl meltdown. The reactor was quickly encased in a lead coffin and had a nondescript concrete building erected around it. The rest of the site was quickly abandoned, but it was still monitored, which is, I guess, how they found me. No one can explain the coyote monsters that I met with. The cops keep accusing me of trespassing in the buildings. They say that I have had radiation poisoning, and that was the cause of my wild hallucinations. But I know that I didn't have contact with any of the buildings until I was faced with that creature in my truck. I managed to damage the lead coffin, exposing myself to radiation levels our hospital has never seen before. I'm so very tired, but I felt like I had to write this down. It wouldn't shock me if this post disappears after I die, or the government decides to cover it up. 
but I couldn't leave what happened to me unsaid. Don't trust coyotes and never go near anything the government has abandoned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.